0: Another episode of and Coeur Quarterly Slush Pile. We hope you're all doing well out there. I had a little bit of a cold again, um, but we're not going to pay any attention to that. We're um, still having construction at our sound studio, so three of us are here in the office at Drexel. Um, for you today, we have uh, two poems that we'll be discussing, and um, I'm Kathleen Volkmiller. I should probably start with that. That should be my lead. Um, I'm Kathleen Volkmiller and I direct the graduate program in publishing here. Um, I uh, am co editor of the Paint and Quarterly. And yeah, I guess that's about sums it up. I'm behind my L shaped desk, so I feel funny because I can barely see Sarah's face. She's half hidden behind a monitor. Um,
1: <laughs> Sarah,
0: peek Hello. from behind the monitor and say, hey.
1: Hello, from over here. Uh, I am Sarah Eikett. I'm a third-year English major at Drexel University, and I'm the current editorial assistant for Pan and Bride Quarterly. And to my left is Tim Fitz.
2: My name is Tim Fitz, <laughs> and I teach here at Drexel University and uh, Curtis Institute of Music. And I'm the author of a short story collection, Hypothermia, and Woo-hoo! novel, The Soju Club. Woo-hoo. And I've been uh, with the and Bride for about three and a half years now. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> and in the bubble is Marion.
3: Ah, greetings from over here. Um, This is Marion Wren. I'm in Abu Dhabi and I'm drinking green tea out of a lovely black mug that says, Write Like a Motherfucker. And this is from the Rumpus. Um, It's part of their swag. It's a fabulous mug of green tea. And it feels very irreverent to be sitting with a mug of green tea with a big curse on it in Abu Dhabi, where I run the writing program. um, And I have been co-editing the Pain and Bright quarterly for some twenty odd years with Kathleen, not that we do that from Abu Dhabi for twenty years, but I feel poetic. For
0: years. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Greetings, I all. miss you. Oh, I miss you too, girlfriend.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for talking to me this morning. I was like yeah. half asleep, and Marion and I did a did a Skype in the, and and with me laying in bed and her rushing off to work, which is how our lives are scrambled and <laughs> upside down. But nice. um. To remind our listeners, you can go look at the poems that we're about to discuss so you can read along with us or look after the fact, um, whichever you'd like, on our podcast pages. Um, so let's get started. I'll, I'll read this first one. Um, everyone should know that it's uh, right justified and it's mostly skinny except for stages three and four. I would say the shape in the end, is fish or mermaid-like, if one looks at the entire thing. What would, you, what would you guys say?
3: I think it looks like seaweed. Um, oh, and okay, so we're I still also, aquatic. Yes, and I also want to say, I have a hunch this might look fantastic on your cell phone, on your iPhone, right? Like, because of that flush right doohickey she's got going on there, I bet it looks really cool in your hand. So this is my my hunch, dear listeners. Do let us know.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll have to check. We'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we'll talk to our listeners about printing printing poems sideways in the book. Yes. Yeah. Like we saw in that one book that we saw at AWP. Yeah. But okay, enough overall. Here we go. This is Alexis Smith. Drink like fish. Barmaid, myrrh girl hung over and strung along by fishtown hookups, size, six, size, cigarette swirled breath, baiting the boys outside the Takira. Teal ombre dip dye, willowing cupy cheeks in frizzy rivulets, silver nose ring catching scratch light from her sunny zippo, striking for a quick suck of smoke before she clocks in and goes under midshift. Myrrh server darts and dips to dodge darts sailing gamely through the dinner rush, a salty dives Friday. A salty dives, sorry. A salty dives Friday nights, sweat swell, stuffed to gills with oil slick sardine packs, leases schools of bloated blowfish, bros, hip loud clowns, doused in lager, spouting flotsam for first
1: fin doctor, oh, finder, finder. Fender. Fender? Tinder? Tinder. Tinder? is another
0: thing like Tinder? No. I think so. Oh, it's a play on words. Okay. Sorry. Blowfish bros, hip loud clowns doused in lagers spouting Flotsam for first, fender dates, wishing they'd switched left. While on the edge of the din sit lone, grim, grizzled marlins with bloodshot eyes and briny drinks and cheeks as rough as rusting swords. Fish with trashed and tattered past mystique. Like in theory, cheery boardwalks turned gray and drizzly in the rain. The crowd, so many fathoms deep, our intrepid merkid gets weeded, yet she winnows through, serves swift and swerves her sway away from ocular octopi tracing her tail. Quiet guys whose eyes snake after supple shapes like groping, sucking hente vines. She hides and curls herself into the side of kitchen stairwell, coves herself in cellar shadow, slowed, savors time, slowing as her tongue skirts a salted rim, lime stinging dry lips, Midori mellowing edge of eyeglass frames like green bottle shards worn smooth by sea. Nice. So my apologies to Alexa. Sorry for those couple glitches there. Um, hopefully she'll forgive me, as will our readers and listeners. When you see this on the page, it's a tough one to read um, due to its formatting. Though so cool, though so fun.
3: Yes, fun, super fun. Like she's super fun so much. Um, it's like so much energy and wit in the the sound of the words and the sequencing of the words and where she's breaking the lines. Um, it really is. It's a,
0: it's a, it's a role, you know, it really yeah. is a, a tumble. Yeah. Um, another thing that I didn't mention about formatting or font or something is, uh, those very first words, barmaid mergirl uh, is in all caps and then later the fourth stanza Under the word "under" is all alone and all in caps. Yeah. So she's done some interesting stuff. Like as your um, the white space is really important here, as as important as the long as the um line
1: length.
3: Yeah. So it's funny with "Barmaid Murgirl," the first line ends with a colon, Mm -hmm. and it's almost as if it it wants to be read like a script, right? Like as if, I don't know, like, this, these are the lines spoken by the barmaid mar but it's not quite that. It's more like a sort of um, cinema camera over the shoulder of this character, right? Sort right. of, like, describing her and then seeing from her perspective. So when you get down to the under, which is also capitalized, it's actually not doing that script-like thing because it's it, – I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but it has the colon, too. Yeah, it has the colon, so like like the font or the typography looks like it's the same. Like you want to read it like it's a script, but it's actually tucked in the line before, right? So smoke, uh, what is it? Um, striking for a quick suck of smoke before she clocks in and goes under. But now right. under is like announcing the next move of the poem. It's trippy. And I, I can't quite figure that out, but I like the way it sort of set me up to expect it to do one thing by that type typographical look, but uh-huh. actually don't Completely different. It's sort of like backfoots and, and changes direction. I thought
2: mm-hmm.
4: that it was the, 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 what happens in the opening with the barmaid mer girl section is above ground, like that's on the boardwalk. And then the under section is what's happening in her underwater life.
0: In the restaurant. That's now we're in there with her, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. But underwater.
2: Right. Finder. Uh- it's not to play underwater.
0: Yeah. By the way, hi Jason. Jason Schneider just joined us. Hi. He had some train incidents. He might tell us about later. It was um, a- But but um, in the poem, did you get to hear the whole thing? I know you saw it on the
4: page, Jay. I I didn't get to hear it being read, but I've I've read the poem.
3: So Jason, just to double back on that, right? So the barmaid murder girl section, it's like she's gearing herself up to go into the bar. Right, so that the the barmaid mer girl is like the she's getting her stuff together, takes a a suck off her cigarette, and then goes in. Right, and going in means she's going under. Like there's a kind of like in the weeds, underwater quality of being a server in a in
0: a space like this. Right. Well, yeah, I certainly don't read that she's literally underwater, but that it can feel like that. Right.
4: No, I I thought it was literally underwater. I
1: thought it was, (laughs) yeah.
4: (laughs) But um, yeah, because I I was trying, because I was having the same the same um question that you were having about kind of like how these two sections are distinguished. And I did, I get, I did. We already discuss the shape. I got really hung up on the shape.
0: Yeah. Well, we did only to note that it reminds each of us of something different, but but aquatic. Aquatic. There's an aquatic theme. Okay. Yeah, so I, you
3: know, the literally underwater makes, really makes me want to raise the question about the title. So it's called Drink Like Fish, and the like, um, it feels like the key to, to the logic of the poem for me a little bit, because this is a really, like, aggressive analogy like being being a server in a bar is like being underwater and so all of the characters that she comes across in this dive are are and fished as it were right they become right. they're transformed right into fishes and and even her her gestures her her thought process right um becomes gets transformed by the this really muscular analogy that the poem
0: relies on Right. And I would say that I didn't see her as literally underwater because she did this metaphor so well and so consistently. I could see, you know, um, briny jinks and cheeks and blowfish bros and, you know, all of these, all of these, uh, what did you call it? And fished, all of these and fish characters and images. I went right with it. You know, that that would be a lens through which one could see a bar on the boardwalk. Yeah.
2: Tim Fitz, what are you thinking? Well, I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering, is this poem embracing the culture it's writing about or or describing, or is it critical of the culture that it describes? That's where I'm hung up at. I'm having trouble figuring out if this person is like sort of, uh, not this person, if the poem is uh, sort of showing off and proud of this like hipster restaurant culture or if it's mocking it.
0: Can it do both?
2: No, it can do both. But I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure where it's doing it. You know what I mean? You know, people are
0: always snarky story. about their own workplace, right? You know, even as she never, even, even as she doesn't quit and look for something else. <laughs> she can, she can do both, I think.
4: I was thinking a lot about um, those mercy poems that Laura McCullough wrote. yeah. Mm-hmm. About, you know, kind of like, and, and she, I think she has a much more critical perspective where in kind of her mm-hmm. presentation of that character, it's really kind of the character is caught up in something. That um, you can't quite navigate or figure out. Whereas this feels much more like um, what it feels like to be inside of it.
3: Yeah. So yeah. I like, I like that, that distinction because it, it actually calls to mind the novel um, that was out maybe last summer or the summer before, uh, forgive me. It's um, Sweet Bitter, uh, Stephanie Downler's book about, um, a uh, sort of fictional character's experience in a, you know, a, a, a fancy restaurant in Manhattan um, in the sort of early 2000s. And it is a deep dive into almost like the sociology of working in a restaurant. Um, you get the sort of like backstory of, of the back of the house experience. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. You know, what, you're know what I'm talking about? So sweet, yeah. bitter would be, to me, the, the analogy, because it's not necessarily like... It's kind of critical and kind of celebrating that life, you know, sure. of, yeah. of, of, of total work, you know, and play and work and play and work and play and never being able to distinguish
0: the two. Mm-hmm. Loving it and hating it at
4: the same time. I'll yeah. also point out that Marion Wren's only film credit is as the <laughs> <head> waitress,
0: waitress.
4: <laughs> in, <the restaurant laughs> in the film, Serenity <laughs>
3: <laughs> Damn, Jason Schneiderman, <laughs> you just totally Marcel Prousted me,
4: right? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. When you were talking about the sociological knowledge of uh, restaurants, I was like, well, actually, Marion. Actually, uh, mean, uh, on, on screen, yeah, um, yeah no, it, it does. It does feel very much kind of inside and both kind of like the romanticization, but also the kind of the grimness. You know, really knowing that that space intimately.
1: Mm. Um, What do
0: you guys think of repetition of the same words and forms of the same words so close to each other? What does that give or take away from the poem? Um, And of course, no, I can't find an example, but um, let me, let me look. Under mid shift, mer server darts and dips to dodge darts. Sailing gamely through the dinner rush. Um there's a lot of moments of that using the same words really closely together hmm.
4: i i I have to say like when I was reading it, and it it was it was very difficult um because of things like that that it it had this kind of um um there there's I, on one hand, I really like the fact that it's demanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I was having a really hard time sort of, like, staying grounded when a lot of that kind of pyrotechnic sound was happening. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the shape and in addition to the metaphor and in addition to, you know, um, the scene, it just it just felt like a lot when I was reading it. Like, it felt like I was struggling a lot of balls to kind of stay inside the poem. mm-hmm.
0: Is that in a good way? <laughs> you
2: know? Um, for, for me, it wasn't. Okay. Um, I mean, I spent years working as a dish dog in, in college and high school, and I really love reading about poems that explore that territory. When I, when I either learn something new that I always knew, or I see things in a different way, or it helps me understand the order, I mean, I know George Orwell's down and out in Paris and London is a a tall, is like a pretty high comparison, but, you know, it's interesting how that those uh, restaurants he worked in in Paris in the 20s are so similar to the structures in Florida in the 90s, where there's just still that same sort of sadomasticistic vibe that's going throughout the whole thing. And so I'm not sure that I'm feeling the connection here the same way as I do reading other, other stories about uh, the restaurant, which I really gravitate towards. Yeah. I, really, yeah. you know,
0: I do too. Um, I was in the restaurant industry and my family was a lot, my, my siblings. So I, I feel like I grew, you know, grew up in theirs as well. Um, so the reason why I asked the question I asked about the redundancy of certain word choices is I really dig this, and I think she did – an amazing job of keeping the metaphor going and describing everybody um in this and manner um but I, di- I didn't understand what her intent might have been on the repetition of those poems you know i mean of those words that's i was not asking rhetorical rhetorically i was I, i'm I can't determine what her intent was. Um, so can,
3: can I, 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 maybe I'm just dim-witted here. I, I don't see more than that. Like that, the, maybe I'm just not seeing the the, the, like the repetition of exactly the same word. I get the repetition of sound, right? I get the sort of assonance and consonance that she's doing throughout. But the, like, I've got the one, the
1: double darts there. But do you guys see more of it? Marion, I'm, I'm with you. I only find the one. And if it's only that one, then I'm not wow. opposed to it. So, uh, no, but you know what? I have to. T- serves, let me just jump well,
0: Maybe it is sounds. Like in that last hand on the first page okay. there, serve swift and swerves her way away, very, very from, you know, close. yeah, yeah, stoned it's
1: flowing, like it's very, very close, but it's not actually the same word. Or maybe since I was the one reading it,
2: it just felt like that. Uh, <laughs> it does yeah. feel like that.
1: Though. It does, yeah. yeah. But that, I think, is actually part of the
3: magic, right? Like she's, she's yeah. making different words, like trick your brain into thinking that they're, they're so sonically similar as if to be the same, and they're not, right? And... So when, when you ask that question, Kath, it just, like, triggered something. I'm, I've been working with um, Mann's poem, um, the, the last poem in the book, uh, This Big Fake World, right? So it's epilogue, this big fake world. And it's a 16-line, really well-crafted poem. And boy, does she repeat words, right? And it's, mm. it's totally strategic. And it's, it's not it's a different kind of music that she's going It's like, she's got going this kind of love dub heartbeat because that poem really is about like reclaiming a sense of, um, the self by kind of nesting with the consumer and materialist crap that, that would threaten to overwhelm us. Right. But if you like build a nest out of moon pies and, and clocks and, barbed wire, right? Like you've got some agency, right? And so her poem is super hopeful at the end of this book. And the, the rhythm is capturing that hope. And the repetition of those words is capturing that hope. <laughs> um, and my cuckoo clock says it's been half an hour since we started talking about this poem. <laughs> uh, but the, this mer-girl situation, I think it, the, the, the language that she's using amplifies the speed with which she's like jumping from thing to thing to thing right, um, which I think maybe activates what Jason's talking about, like maybe it feels like too much for the reader um, with all the other things that are going on, but it's also quite, I would say, like wild to see her do this, and, and the wildness for, for me cuts right through the slush pile. Like I actually mm-hmm. haven't seen something this, this, um, th- with this kind of velocity in a while. Right.
1: I think that the her use of language and metaphor is so strong, and it's very captivating. The thing that I'm wondering is what what does this poet want me to take from reading this? Yeah, I had a great time reading it while I was reading it. I had a great time, you know, listening to the the various. Um, alliterations and things like that and like how she's able to turn phrases like tinder into finder um but i just want to know like okay so why did i read this other than for that metaphor and for the your use of language like what am i as the reader taking away from this
2: mm-hmm. like what's the yes yeah. like how does this reach out beyond
1: yeah. the
4: restaurant world
2: it's yes. got to yeah do, do,
1: that's do what we, i'm struggling we, with with this poem
4: literature to do that like doesn't literature isn't literature's obligation just to kind of present us with? Uh, uh, like do we have to actually like have a takeaway or a moral yeah um
0: that's that's what i was gonna say too jason like isn't the look in enough the look you know the look in the world through this lens isn't that enough like say next time you're in a bar late at night some of these images might pop in your mind you know
3: You know, let me jump on Sarah's side there for a second. It's not like I need a thesis, right? And it's not like yeah. I need a deliverable, right? Like a takeaway, but I, but I do want an idea, right? And, and the idea might be a little bit more of a capacious way of thinking about that notion of a takeaway, right? That there's some gravitational center here that sure, it's a poem about a bar, but it's also about being obliterated by the pace of work in that bar. Right. And that, that, that feels like a, again, like the gravitational force holding all these pieces together. And, mm-hmm. and maybe at that, maybe that part's blurry with all the sort of acumen here, that idea that it feels a little maybe fuzzy. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Thank you,
3: Mary. <laughs> Vulcan mind melt, sister. Vulcan mind melt. I see you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, do you guys think that we should vote and yeah. go? Yeah? We're voting yeah. to vote? We're voting to vote. Okay. Um, so Tim and Sarah and I are in the office and we're gonna do a one, two, three shoot. And we're gonna wait for uh Ryan to let us know. Okay, that did not get in. <gasps> Glug 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 glug. Oh, no. wow! Fascinating. Love working yeah. with you. Fascinating. Sup- super close, but it didn't go in. I can tell by by some of the reactions here that people um are surprised.
3: So uh, Alexa, run don't walk to the next literary magazine.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. I don't know what we could say to her as the reason why, like if she, you know well, I think I think there's what just different resonances.
2: To... You know, like right. th- like the, the one difference between I think your position and my position was it didn't resonate with me the same way for whatever reason. Some mm-hmm. yeah. subjective reason. Mm-hmm. But it's not like I thought the poem was terrible. Right. It didn't resonate enough for me to say yes. It right. did for you to say yes. And that's just Yeah. Yeah, it
0: was close, and there are five of us. But, There's an odd number, so
2: definitely, like Marion said, when it's that close, you know, this one or two literary magazines down the line, yeah, the numbers are going to shift. Sure. When it's that close, it's always like that. Sure.
4: Yeah. If yeah. we have one different person on the podcast. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on. Um, Marion, you're going to take care of this next poem.
3: Yeah, so we have a poem by um, the poet Shabnam Um and the poem is called Pine. Um, and it it looks quite different from the poem that we just saw of Alexa's. It's a little bit more conventional, um, but it's free verse and it's got some you know sort of long lines, a couple short lines. You'll see it on the on the liner notes of of our podcast. The liner notes of our podcast. I, I'm sorry, I just snorted because I called them liner notes.
0: I know that's why I'm laughing too. <laughs> um, just so you guys know, and so our audience knows, um, she had submitted three pieces to us and two of them were sucked up by other places before we could get to them. So yay for you. And um, let's have Marion read Pine. Okay, so this is Shabnam
3: Peria's Pine. I spy you on a rock at the edge of a cliff, a tiny figure hunched against heaven, The stupid expanse of a building-less sky. I fear dropping you because I can. Above you, an angle of birds know precisely how to navigate. Distance is like this, leaving me excess space to play with my weapons. I hum uncertain beyond the provocation of your back. Strands of me dangle from my shirt, unwilling to be discarded. No God laughs while slitting the throats of his children, I think, you will stay at the edge of a cloud-rivered abyss. In another expanse, clouds convene over the raft of a survivor, lip-split and issuing confessions. Here, crickets have convened, shuddering at the scrape of evening's tongue, I lull for your shadow to stand.
0: Very nice. Thank you so what do you think
1: (laughs) I got the idea that this is a poem about watching a loved one suffer with depression wow Sarah how do you get that talk can you talk me through that reading sure I mean um Right off the bat, it's this speaker is talking about a you on a on the edge of a cliff, um, and that already um, brings forth mind like brings the mind to think of suicide. I think, um, and just these images of um, they're a little little grim and dreary, which mm-hmm. you know, lends itself. Um, and I think that line, uh, no God laughs while slitting the throats of his children. I think, um, to me, like, I don't know a lot of this, I feel like this poem is in some ways about death. Mm-hmm. Um, and after thinking it through that, like I thought of suicide
2: mm-hmm. because of the
1: images of this clip. Um, and it's like the, especially the last few lines where the speaker is like, has such a strong desire for this person to stay or stand at this cliff and not move um to be calm so got you okay
3: thank you mm-hmm.
2: now that's all i can see <laughs> <laughs> what did you see before I, I wasn't sure what to see before but there's some things that i liked was um that i think at the end of the line though god laughs while slitting this, the throats of his children i think you know, so that's, I, I like that doubt. Um, I like the, um, the angle of birds, know precisely how to navigate. Uh, I think that's something that nobody really talks about, but that always amazes me when I see the huge flocks of birds that are driving down the road. They all turn at the same time. Yeah. And it, it, But then you forget about it and you don't mm-hmm. talk about how amazing it is. But every time it's like, oh, I need it, I wish I could show somebody this. Yeah. And then that moment's gone. Um, and I like the stupid expanse of a building with sky. Yeah. yeah. So, so for me, these like these moments were happening, and I liked I liked the images. And the first couple times, really uh, reading through, I, I felt like there was a it was getting to something important, but I wasn't there yet because I hadn't caught up to it. I didn't feel like it wasn't in the poem, and it was just a bunch of images that didn't that didn't tie together, I felt like this is going to require more of me than, than a simple
0: poem. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's incredibly dense.
4: I, I was thinking of it in the context of kind of the refugee crisis and the pine on the rock mm-hmm. as a kind of um, metonym or stand-in or metaphor for the last figure left in a kind of bombed out, evacuated, fled face. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the, the no God last while sitting in the of his children and sort of the, the the pine being both the mirror image and the symbol of, of this lone person seeing this abyss that like everything's about to fall into.
0: Yeah. Clouds convene over the <coughs> raft of a survivor.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Lip split and issuing confessions.
2: Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. interesting. I think I was more along those those lines, Jason. When I was thinking of it, I was thinking of it that way as well. Um, Another type of typographical question, formatting question. Um, She doesn't start lines after periods with capital letters. Keeps everything lowercase. Right. What's that about?
1: The only letter that's uppercase is I. Yeah. Not even the word god is capitalized right
0: oh necessary. yeah right
1: right i wasn't sure what to make of that but i noticed it <laughs> mhm
2: mm-hmm. the eyes are cap- did we did you just say the eyes are capitalized yeah, yeah. the I only know, thing that's capitalized for a yeah
4: that, <laughs> i'm trying not to be bothered by it um, and i'm glad <laughs> you not it's um, <laughs> i just never understand why people like
0: Make that choice. Okay. Yeah, and the title is also lowercase, which is like you know,
4: barrier, the word fine. A flow between the previous sentence and the next sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the capital letter visually forms like a little bit more of a barrier in English because that's what we do if you're in German. It wouldn't make any difference. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I never, I'm, I'm never really on board with people um, eccentrically playing with typography, I mean even E.E. E. Cummings, like it seems, it <sighs> seems where, where, you, you know how he does that thing where there's no space around the commas, but then there's space, it's like, oh, d- 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 it would have been better if you hadn't done that.
0: Oh, don't you dare. He <laughs> was my first poetry love as, as, as he was, I'm sure, for so many others, yeah. <laughs> but anyway.
4: I
1: wasn't it, sure if it was more of um, giving the eye more authority you know, I don't know why the I would need more authority because I'm still unsure of who this I is.
2: That bothers me a little bit. Only the Mm -hmm. I is capitalized. But then if you made it, made it lowercase, it would bother me more. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think it would change the meaning of the poem that much just to make it normal. What What would be changed? I really enjoy uh, Sarah and Jason's readings of the poem regardless yeah, and but I, think you, but I do think is like if whenever I see the lowercase uh, first line of the first uh, word of the sentence, like Jason, I I immediately think of E. cummings. and then I'm kind of out of the poem for a little bit, you know? I mean, yeah. Just I mean, that's it.
4: Yeah. I mean,
2: you can't do it without thinking. A, of
4: a lot cum. of people don't capitalize letters. I mean.
2: Yeah, but you think of it. I mean, you, could, you, could, you, you know, could, you there's could, you a professor a here way. who doesn't
0: capitalize his name, and I have never asked him, but he really doesn't. When he publishes it on everything, he keeps his name lowercase. So I'm not sure exactly what all the motivation is behind that, but I just thought we should note that for our listeners in this poem. Um, so is this too dense? Can we break it up? Is it wonderful that Sarah thinks it's suicide and Jason thinks it's...
2: Um, Refugees. Refugees. I I, I really like that about the poem. Mm -hmm. Like These two different angles. And I actually feel like um, for each way the the poems read, both of those angles, I feel like my heart goes out to them more. Like I really feel like I see the loneliness of somebody on the edge and I see the loneliness of of the refugees and the desperation and just the certainty that things are going to go wrong. and it helps confirm those emotions for me so in that way this poem does reach out to me to what the poem's about um i i have a an amazing takeaway from these okay Beavis. 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 Beavis.
4: The only, I mean, I really love the language in this poem. The only thing that gave me pause, well, I shouldn't say the only, there were two things that gave me pause. One was uncertain on a single line, and the other was strands of me dangle from my shirt. Yes,
1: yes. I, <laughs> I like that. Yeah? Yeah, I was a fan of that line. What does it mean? I was thinking hair. Hmm. hmm. That's true. Your hair is so real even when it's the worst.
3: i haired woman whose hair sheds constantly. I actually, thank you, Sarah. That's a very familiar and specific image. But strands of me dangle from my shirt, I'm willing to be discarded. Dang. Like, like that is, okay, if that's hair, that's a great image, but I don't get how it, it resonates with the others in the piece. So, and my head went to, um, and I forget the name of it, what is the um, religious clothing uh, that... Jewish people wear, uh, and it's a shawl, and you can see
4: the. The, what's the, the prayer shawl is a talus. Um, if ta-talf. you're talking about the thing that like your head goes through and then the fringes stick out, that's a that's it's it.
3: That. Not the it. I think I'm talking about the talus, which is like the sh- prayer shawl. Or is that so? And if you you would would you just wear that under clothing, like you would wear like a shirt and the and then the talus hangs mm-hmm.
4: out the bottom. The, the talus you only wear over. Um, I mean you, you you use it for morning prayers. Okay. Um, and like a couple of other prayers, but um, yeah, you just it's it's over whatever you're wearing. It doesn't ever go under the, the tzitzit goes under. Like if you see yeah, like maybe I'm
3: thinking the tzitzit, yeah. The, yep.
4: the strings sticking out, like sort of like hanging out of like their pants. Yeah. Like that because that, that goes under your shirt. That goes, Yeah. That sits under your shirt.
3: So that so that although the, like okay, the strands dangling from the shirt, that's the image that came to mind. But I think Sarah's right. It strands of me dangle from my shirt, so that so that image sort of evaporates for me. I can't quite hold it. It's a little bit more ghostly and and phantom. Like I can't I can't get it to appear clearly in my mind.
4: But I, I think I mean I, the, the rest of the poem. I think is is strong enough to carry it. Oh.
0: Oh. Okay, I think we're ready to vote. Are we?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay, let's go. One, two, three. Oh, shoot, wait. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's one, two, three, shoot, not oh, shoot, wait. Shoot, wait. (laughs) Okay, this one is in. Woo! woo All right. So, uh, uh, one in, one out. And um, we've talked a good long while, so um, I'm wondering if we should talk about anything else that we need to. I thought of another topic that we could talk about, um, and that's rejection. That's about all these rejection games I heard people speaking of at AWP. But um, vote to keep talking or to sign off. How long has it been, Ryan? (sighs) about 40 minutes. Oh, that's okay, good. let's talk about rejection games. Um, so it seemed like, I'm sure people have done this forever, but it seemed like I kept hearing about um, people playing rejection games with their friends, um, and so that we're all on the same page. Uh, some people attributed this to um, an article that Roxane Gay uh, published on Pank, in which she talks about her own experiences as an editor first, And how hard it is to reject people with the, um, you know, we just had to reject Alexa and and it hurts, you know. It's not like we have fun throwing things back. Um, And then she even admits to her own own stats. And she says she's rejected about 78% of the time. And the bottom line message of her essay is getting rejected as part of the game and get out there and get rejected. So um, I met uh, a woman who said that she's with, with a group of other people. They give themselves a a certain date, like a month, six weeks or whatever. And everybody accrues rejections and has to share them with each other as soon as they get them and they keep accounts. And then whoever gets the most rejections gets taken out to dinner by the others.
2: I think she should, he or she should buy
0: dinner, brother. Uh, oh, No, well, that's why she's a winner because she's trying the hardest. That's the point, okay. right? And then um, another uh, group I met, a couple different people I met said they were doing a hundred rejection race with their friends. Mm. Who hits a hundred first, gets something. Mm. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you guys think? And did you hear of any other ways to play... Rather, rejection came with your writerly
1: friends. I guess it depends on how you feel about rejection. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, the way that uh, Tim just said that um, that person should pay for dinner, <laughs> <laughs> and that would mean that uh, Tim views or you might view rejection as a bad
2: thing, and so I, I view it as a terrible thing, but I also it. <laughs> I also, it. I, I also see it as a something that's like is it, incredibly important, mm-hmm. and so you have to confront. It. The rejection and you have, to, you have to figure out why and there's certain places, I mean there's certain magazines that where I get rejected and if they say anything positive I know it's going to be accepted within a couple of weeks by
0: somebody else like by what you just else. said
2: about the yeah. Alexis Smith piece I love getting rejected by the New England Review <laughs> I always almost get in there and then they send me a nice letter <laughs> back and forth and ask for more stuff but for whatever the reason is and it's always a good reason. Somebody else likes that. They they once um, said it was it was a little too weird. But then the next magazine a week later said we love the weirdness of
0: it. So I wasn't <laughs> upset about it. I just right. thought, okay, well
2: this is. Well, this so you're is only proving
0: the point though that you've got to keep trying. That's yeah. that's Roxanne Gay's point and the point of the right. rejection yeah. games is, you know, like basic sales. Um, every no gets you closer yeah. to a yes, right?
2: Yes, yeah. but. Now, I'm saying this publicly now, but for me at home, it's a very private thing. I don't, I, you know, I get, I don't like seeing the original, it always hurts. Right. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, I'm
2: not like, yay, New England Review said no. I wish they would say yes, but it's out of my control. And, but I do get to know how the work is resonating with at least part of the audience landscape. Right. And so, and then sometimes they say, uh, not New England Review, another magazine will say no, says no all the time. And I get really upset about it. And I go look at their work and I don't see why they're saying no to me and yes to some other people. But that also is a challenge to, you know, find those other, you know, to, you know, you got to hit it hard, whatever you're going to do, whether you're playing game or not, you got to hit it hard. Right. And be very aggressive about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, however you're, however you confront it, whether you're, I mean, it is interesting at first for a while that this happens, but it does. I mean especially if you've ever had a losing streak. I mean, it wears on you. You have to start. Like You need a win. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror. (laughs) That's hard during a losing streak. You keep doing it because there's only one way out of the losing streak. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. But you know what, Tim, you just said it too. It's like, you know, it wears on you and it makes you feel solitary. And if rejection makes you feel ashamed, that's a terrible emotional burden, right? Mm -hmm. So. Game part of it—the fact that you're playing with a, a friend or a, a work um, like a like a writing buddy—I mean, you, you've built a sort of like strategic network, right? Of like link folks with linked arms around, or you know, into the fray with linked arms, right? And that—that's a support system, like in the truest sense. Yeah,
0: yeah. I love that image, Mary. And write a poem about that. <laughs> I also. <laughs> winged arm this marching also, i'm just picturing all the marches we've been on lately yeah, yeah. i love it
2: there're also a lot of people out there who see rejection as bad juju so if you're getting rejected yes. they don't want to stand near you uh. and i think that's the majority of the people in the world you people don't want to be around people who are failing i mean yeah, i, I, think, I you know you, you you i don't want to live my life like that and stuff but i know there's plenty of people you know they ask how everything's going, they say, oh, oh, my book got rejected. And you see a look in their face like, oh, your life's not going anywhere, is it? And like, wait, wait, you like, I wait. internalize all that.
3: No, no, no. What was, oh, my God. What um, Blanche and the, um, the the little old ladies who lived in Florida, what was that TV show?
2: Golden Girls? Oh, Golden Girls. Golden
3: Girls, right? So do you remember <laughs> Estelle, like the little Italian lady? Is that her surname? Was Estelle? Still it. Wow, Mary, you're going into uncharted okay. hold territory. Hold on, hold on. So she used to say, like, if somebody came up with her with bad
0: news, she'd say, get away from me, you're bad luck.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, Tim, not to be argumentative with you, but I've, I've never felt that way or, or or observed that from others, like, that it would be a, a contagious Situation.
2: Yeah, no, I, don't <laughs> every, I don't think everybody yeah. feels that way, but there are many, many, many people who do feel that way.
3: Well, like you said, and, and the, the writer being are, rejected a, herself might feel that way, right? Like, that's the right. game, is, it isolates.
4: Right. Yeah, I mean, if the game takes the sting out of it, then, you know, go ahead and play the game. But I don't know, like, <sighs> I mean, mm-hmm. I did a terrible thing. Um, I did a terrible thing.
0: Well, tell
4: us. I tell. have been one a, a journal I've been trying to get into for about fifteen years, and you know, and I have journals where, like, I'll I'll like I had one journal like in the old days. There, there were different size rejection letters. Like, I worked my way up from the like three by five piece of like form paper to like a full like eight and a half by 11 and there were like three or four intermediate stages. And like, then the editor changed and, you know, like the last letter had said, this isn't right for your debut. And then the editor was, you know, right. So anyway, so but not that journal, a different journal, an editor wrote to me and said, you know, that he, he was sorry that he'd held the work for so long, but that it was because he respected it. And because, um, you know, he hopes that it wouldn't discourage me from submitting again. Yeah. And I didn't wait to hit send, and I wrote back, um, I've been submitting for 15 years. Why would I stop now? Jason, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I probably said this. That's not a
0: terrible thing. That's your terrible thing? Uh, if
4: someone, yes. If someone says to you, like, please keep sending me work, and you say to them, like, please, you think you can discourage me?
0: <laughs> I,
4: I, I got rejected by a magazine
2: for about the fifth time. This is about 10 years ago. And... They sent me this rejection letter, like, don't feel like you're not, your work isn't good enough, You know, hang in there, this real sort of pitying rejection letter. So I <laughs> sent them a letter back saying, you know, I'm not sitting on the edge of my bed with a box of razor blades. I just <laughs> keep submitting to a magazine. No, you didn't. Get over yourself. I did. That's so much they And they sent back and said, don't submit. And I sent back and said, I won't. Get the heck saying, out of here. But I feel like that's ridiculous to think like, oh, you poor writers. You get rejected. That's stupid. You know, like it's just the game. You just go. You reject. You get rejected, and you don't. It's
4: fine. But it's also you know? gendered. Like Tin House did. Like I think it was Tin House who did a study, and they found yeah. that when you reject men, they'll continue to respond no matter how you reject them. Women will only resubmit, But uh, not only, but as a trend, women resubmit if they're asked to. But if you send a rejection letter to a woman that says. Um, we really liked this. We're not going to take it, but please send us more work. That's the condition under which women will we submit. But men, um, it doesn't matter what you say.
1: Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry,
0: men. Men, it's a whole different ball game. I don't yeah. know if this is appropriate or not, but I did one of those uh, five-minute dating things once, the speed dating. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, the hosts spoke to the men and the women beforehand, you know, about the rules of the game and everything. And um, they specifically said, women, if you laugh a lot at the guy and smile a lot, they're going to think you like them. And when we go to match up later they'll be they'll be dumbstruck that you didn't choose them. <laughs> they were actually telling the women to not be too friendly if they didn't think they were That's gonna ridiculous. like the guy. I promise you it's that is true. Not the
1: ones. Oh
0: my god. <laughs> no, that men will yeah, not yeah. understand that they're being rejected. Right? Any any
1: encouragement is huge encouragement is my point. Yeah. Um, I feel like going back to this topic i feel like we shouldn't we shouldn't internalize Mm -hmm. rejection but i don't know if we should necessarily like celebrate it you know like yeah you know just just take the rejection and be like all right what can i do to not get rejected you know yeah like count how many rejections you get i don't know well, that
4: used well, to be a thing. Like and, of every, course, I'm
1: new to the game, so, you know. You
4: know I was, like, when I was starting out, like, a lot of people had... Instead of... I mean, these games seem much healthier. Um, everyone had, like, you know, their files of rejections that they thought, you know, they were going to show the world that, you know, like, these people who rejected them would be so sorry once they were famous.
1: Uh,
2: yes. <laughs> well,
0: like, that's
4: true. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen.
0: Who was it? I think it's... I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the and somebody. And I apologize, listeners. We'll make sure we get this on the page correctly. But somebody huge, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, said, um, "Thank you to everybody who rejected me." To and he like named it, like to the 84 publishers who said no first.
4: Right.
2: Yeah. So it all happens. Yeah. The, the like, first three stories that I published. I wish I had gotten rejections for mm. because now they're out there and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes the thing you think is in your favor is not in your favor. So you have, yeah. you have to have some perspective.
0: Well, I mean, CLMP says they can't even count how many lip bags we have going right now because there's so many online. And, um, you know, I think they said the number's somewhere between six and 8,000. That's how, how nebulous it is, how unable they are to count. So being published is all kind of relative too, right? In a way. So there goes the cuckoo clock again. We'll take that as a signal. Um, To say thank you uh, listeners and thank you, uh, Marion and Jason and Tim and Sarah and Ryan, our sound engineer. Um, Again, the work is on our podcast pages. Um, Tell us what you think about rejection games and if you have any really cool ones. Um, let us know email us directly or put it up on our Facebook or respond to this event. We have so many ways to communicate. Um, So I guess that's it. Keep reading. Thank you very much. Woo!